In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Okay, um, God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, we, we studied last time uh, chapter 8, right, I think. And today we're going to continue um, on uh, with chapter 9. So um, in chapter 8, do you remember what was like the main topic that St. Paul was speaking about to the Corinthians? for they were doing a good job for what right so they were doing a good job yes and they were they were they were following through with what he had commanded them to do what else because he's going to continue this topic today he spoke to them about giving to giving joyfully right to who those whom need, but who specifically? Who were the people that were in need that he wanted to give to? The church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem. And why Jerusalem? Because they were being persecuted. And why were they being persecuted? Specifically there, it was like the hotbed of persecution. Because was the Jews who are living in Jerusalem course that's where the jews are living right and so the the jews were doing a lot of the persecution against the christians because they didn't you know they, they the christianity was a direct offshoot from judaism and the jews felt that it was uh, invalid like it was a sect it was against god's commandment um just as saint paul was also at one time one of those who were persecuting the christians um he uh, the, 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 the Christians there were experiencing a lot of this persecution. And so St. Paul is speaking to all the churches in Macedonia, right, which is in all that region, right, in, in Greece. And he is encouraging them to give, okay? And specifically here, he is um, speaking to the Corinthians about giving. And he continues that dialogue with them here in this chapter. So he says, now concerning the ministering to the saints, Right? It is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. So what, is that? what does that mean? So he says, concerning the ministering to the saints. What is the ministering to the saints? The saints is referring to who? The members of the church. The believers, right? We are the saints, right? We are the saints. So the ministering to the saints, he's speaking about what? Hmm? Preaching, okay. But specifically regarding the topic of, that we just said, giving, right? So the ministering, so here when he speaks about the ministering to the saints, he's speaking about giving to the poor. Okay, to the poor, to the persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. It is super, superfluous for me to write to you. Why is it superfluous? What does superfluous mean? Hmm? Important? No, actually, it has the opposite meaning. Superfluous means unnecessary. It is, it, is, it is unnecessary for me to write to you because I know your willingness. So he's saying what? 
I already know that you love the saints. I already know that you want to give to the saints. I already know all of this. So it's like unnecessary for me to write to you to remind you again that I need, that you need to be doing this. But I'm going to do it anyway. Like I'm going to tell you, I'm going to remind you, but I try, I'm not doing this because I believe that unless I did this, you wouldn't give. I believe that you are, you know, you will give, you will minister to the saints, but, but I'm like exhorting you, I'm encouraging you to do that about which I boast of you to the Macedonians. So it's like St. Paul is speaking to the other churches in the same region in Macedonia, and he is boasting about them. And he's saying, look at the Corinthians. The Corinthians are doing a great job, like ministering to the saints and so on. And Achaia is like um, the, the entire region, right? And the capital of Achaia is Corinth, okay? So, um, so it's like Corinth, the Corinthians have been a good example um, to, to, to everyone, to all of the churches, okay? Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Okay? So he's saying what? He is sending like this delegation of people. Okay? And he is sending, he's sending them for the purpose of collecting the money that should be collected from them for the distribution in Jerusalem, okay? So he's saying, I'm telling you ahead of time to, so that you may be ready. So when these people come for the collection to collect the money that will be distributed, that you are ready. You are not thrown off. Like you are, you are, you're receiving them expectantly that they will come and that you will offer to them what it is you have prepared and so that they can go along their way and um, bring it to the people in Jerusalem, okay? Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, what? You should be ashamed of this confident boasting. So it's like, I've, I've, I've talked you up so much and I've said all these great things about you and how you are gonna, you know, you're so generous and loving and ministering to the saints. So when I come, you better show that this is true. Otherwise, you're gonna be embarrassed. And all of this boasting that I've been kind of, you know, boasting about you is kind of going to be in vain, right? That's, that's what he's saying. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you have previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. So he's encouraging them to give, not for the wrong reasons, Right. You know, he's not, he's encouraged them not to give for the sake of reputation. It's not like, okay, we have to one up the other churches. You know, sometimes, sadly, like there's competition between churches. And it's like, okay, you know, this church over here, they did this thing. So we have to like one up that thing that they did. This church gave this amount. Oh, we have to give more than that amount. You know, this church established something. Oh, we have to now also establish something. So here, the idea, he's saying what, um, that you may do it um, as a matter of generosity. The giving should be out of a love, out of a desire to serve others, not out of an obligation, not for a wrong reason, not to please St. Paul, not to please the other apostles, not to show off to anyone else, not because we are forced into it, but simply out of our generosity, for the sake of the love of God, for the sake of the love of the brethren, out of thanksgiving to God for all that he has given to us. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So he's, he's speaking now about, um, 
you know, like the rewards of giving. And we spoke about this a little bit before, right? Blessed are those who sow beside all waters. This is what it says in Isaiah 32:20. Blessed are you who sow beside all waters. What does that mean? It means those who are, are blessed, who are ready to give every help to every needy person, right? It's like every person who comes to you, regardless of their situation, right? And you are willing to give, this person is blessed. There is a reward for giving, okay? Also in Isaiah chapter 58, um, it says, If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. And you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Okay. We spoke earlier about the idea that God rewards those who are generous in giving and those who are tithing. And I, and I said um, that the reward of tithing, it isn't necessarily money. You know, there's no promise where God says, if you tithe, then I will multiply your wealth. Okay. But look at what he says here in Isaiah chapter 58. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. So if you are giving, then here is what's going to happen. Your light shall, shall, shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. Meaning all the things that trouble us, the, in, the inner darkness, right? The inner darkness, like we, we live in a, in, a, in a time now of rampant mental illness, right? And I don't mean mental illness that's necessarily like diagnosed as being, I have this disorder and you have this disorder. I'm talking about the, the stress, the anxiety, the confusion, the lack of certainty, the fear, um, all of the stresses of life that we deal with that it seems like from year to year only amplifies, only increases, okay? And people living with this uncertainty, with this anxiety, with this confusion, what they need and they, what they want is relief, you know? They want direction. They want guidance. They want to know what should I do in my life? How can I handle all of these stresses and demands on me, okay? This idea, if you, if you want to look at this internal struggle as a kind of a darkness, as a, as, a, as a confusion, right? The idea that here, that through our giving, through our personal sacrifice, through our love to others, that God is saying that a light will shine on the darkness and our darkness will be as the noonday. It's like it gives us clarity. It gives us direction. When we begin, we begin to understand the world, and I don't mean understand the world as in we understand the motivations of everyone in the world and what's happening in the world, but what I mean is we understand our purpose. We understand why we are here. We understand that, that our time here is limited. We understand that we are not living for this world, and we, but we are living for the next world. That is all a part of being illuminated, right? We are, we are illuminated. We are, we are aware of our surroundings. We are aware of who we are, right? I, I recently visited somebody who had an aquarium, and it had like the biggest fish I'd ever seen in an aquarium. I mean, it was huge, okay? And, and, and I thought to myself, like, the, like I was looking at the fish. There was one fish that just kept hanging out in one corner over here, like sucking on the fake rocks. And then there was another fish on the other side, always just hanging out where it was. And I, I was questioning, like, do these fish realize where they are? Like, do, do, they, do they imagine that this aquarium that they're in is like the ocean? 
and they're just kind of like oblivious to the fact that they're just hanging out in one small little space their entire life? Do they believe that they're actually swimming in the ocean? Do they believe that that rock that they sucked on is actually a new rock that they didn't suck on before? And they, they, like, they live their life like this? Like it honestly occurred to me, like how, how, are, they, how are they living? You know, and how, what do they believe about themselves? And it makes me think like, this is sometimes like reflection of, of us, okay? Like we are in an aquarium and we believe this aquarium to be the ocean. We believe that we're swimming in the ocean. We believe that we're accomplishing. We believe that we're doing. We believe that we're traveling. You know, we believe that we are, we are doing something grand. But in actuality, we're not. In actuality, this world is just like a, like a blip, like a dot. Like, like compared to the, the, the real existence, like compared to what God actually has prepared for us, this world is nothing, you know? So... Sometimes we imagine ourselves to be going places and doing things when really we're just like, you know, we're just in this small little tiny thing. The idea that, that, that you know, the light shines on us, that we realize this, you know, that our eyes are open, that we see, we understand who we are, we understand where we're going. It's very powerful. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones and you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail all this beautiful imagery to kind of give us a sense of how does god treat those who extend their soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul someone who is willing to serve another person someone who shows love to a person who's downtrodden someone who's willing to listen someone who shows compassion someone who cares about something other than themselves right? That this is the reward that God gives. This reward is far greater than money, you know? Like when, when people are thinking about like the prosperity gospel, prosperity gospel, which says, you know what, if you give a lot, then God's going to give you a lot, okay? Well, what is he going to give me? You know, is, is, is this like a, like a get-rich-quick scheme? Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay X amount and God guarantees I'm going to make like 20% return? Like, no, that's, that's not the promise of God. Right. That is not that is not. And the things that actually God offers are far more valuable than that, that which we maybe look for, look for. OK, he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And again, he says, do it out of generosity, out of love, not begrudgingly, not because we are, you know, doing it selfishly, but we are doing it for the sake of another. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, right? Our giving should not be transactional in the sense that it, it should, there, there should be a person behind it. Like, it's hard sometimes, right? Because, I mean, let's say for those who tithe, like, we tithe, we say, okay, my income is X, and maybe I set up some automatic bank transfer every month that says, okay, this is the, the tithe that I'm going to pay. There's nothing wrong with that. All I'm saying is it's easy for us when we do that to forget that this money is actually going to serve some purpose, right? It's going to serve a purpose. We should be giving it with a heart, like with a, with a, with a love, with a desire, right? And as I said before, there were um, in the temple, there was like two boxes for almsgiving. There was the, the box for the tithes, and then there was the, which is like the necessities, the things that the law commands. And then there was another box for the bountiful giving, right? The box that people would use when they want to give above the tithe. And, and so in our mindset, you know, like, what are, are we giving begrudgingly? Are, are we just barely even able to eke out the tithe that we are giving? 
or are we giving bountifully and even more the way that St. Paul here was encouraging the people to give? Because this reward is coming to those who give bountifully. It's coming to those who give generously. It's giving to those who give out of love. Yes. I'm sorry. I, I wanted to go a little bit back, like verse one. It's okay if you don't have to, but verse one, verse one, it's uh, something about like how it was referring to saints. Mm -hmm. So um, what's the, uh, this is kind of a tangent, but like, what is the parameter of like uh, someone being canonized as a saint? And does that mean like, uh, since there is like a process of canonizing the saint, does that mean that no other person can be a saint? Just because they're not canonized? Like, so that? the word saint, as it's used in the scripture, is not speaking about like the saints that we speak about, like when we say like Saint Anthony, or the word saint here is used to describe all believers because we are all called to be saints, right? We are all called to be holy. We are all called to, you know, be in union with God. We are all called to be filled with the light of Christ, right? So, in that sense, we are all saints. And so when the scripture speaks about the saints, it's not speaking about canonization. It's speaking about all believers. Okay. When, when, I mean, to your question, when we uh, in the church look at canonizing someone a saint, it is a decision of the synod and it's based on um, the life that that person lived. And it doesn't have to be based on miracles or anything supernatural, right? Like in our church, um, St. Habib Gerges, Habib Gerges was the founder of the Sunday school movement. Okay, and he did so much service in Egypt to spread theology and to revive spiritual and theological education in the church from the young age all the way up to the priesthood. And so because of his great accomplishment and because of his righteousness, his holiness, his zeal and all those things, even though there is no record, as far as I know, of him having performed any miracles or anything like that, we canonize him as a saint in our church. But you also have others who are canonized saints and um, they are like they are miracle workers, you know. Um, so it's more about like identifying certain people who have like a unique um, love of God. And that love of God is manifested in their life in various ways. But ultimately, it's the decision of the synod um, to to do. But we refer to everyone as a saint in that sense. We are the saints. That's why in the, in the liturgy, um, when the priest is speaking about the communion, he's saying what the holy for the holies. The holy is the body and the blood of the Lord. The holies are the people. So he's saying the holy, the, the communion is for the holies. It's for those who are holy that are coming to partake of communion. So it's not about the canonization. It's about that we are all called to live holy in the eyes of God. Okay. No, no, it's fine. <clears throat> And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Okay? God is the one that grants the sufficiency, right? It is, it is not the money itself. You know, because when you, when you think about, you know, now we're talking about distribution of wealth and giving it money and, and these things. Oftentimes, unfortunately, even in the church, when the thoughts begin to dwell on the idea of money, that's when there starts to be conflicts. There starts to be like um, jealousies. There starts to be, you know, fighting about money, right? It's very easy to fall into this fight about money because 
we see money as being a source of all of our heart's desire. That what is money? If I have it, I desire it, which will make me happy in life. Um, and so I want it. And that's why money is a very dangerous thing. Very, very subtly dangerous. Even for those of us who understand this and are trying to be careful, it is easy for us to fall into this trap, right? To follow this trap of money. So you're saying Paul is emphasizing the idea that what God is able to make all grace abound. What is really that we are looking for is the grace of God, right? It is the grace of God. St. John Chrysostom, he says, if God rewards those who sow the soil of the earth with an abundance of crop, how much more would he reward those who sow the soil of heaven through caring for the soul, right? This is what we should be looking for more than money, more than wealth, right? More than the physical things, the material things, is that God would reward us with the soil of heaven, the fruit of heaven, the, the, the fruit that truly has no bounds, the fruit that truly answers the questions of like our yearning hearts in this world, the things that people are actually looking for when they look for money that they cannot find in money, this is actually what God is offering, is the bottom line. Like God offers peace. He offers security. He offers joy. He offers, you know, confidence. He, he offers hope. All those things that human beings try to find through the material God just gives it to us through his grace. So this is the, the goal here is not about the money, right? The goal here is about showing love and that these wealthier Christians would show love to those who are the less fortunate Christians by giving and sacrificing of their own things to them and also demonstrating detachment. You know, like I'm, I'm able to give away, I'm able to sacrifice of these gifts that God has given me because I see that actually God is the source of grace. God is the provider, not the wealth that he gives, but he himself. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. This is a quote from Psalm 112, verse 9. Okay. He has dispersed abroad means what? Meaning he has like taken his wealth like a man, like a righteous man who takes his wealth and he dis disperses it. He distributes it. It's like he, he's so generous in his heart that he wants to give to anyone and everyone that he sees. You know, who is a, a good example that comes to mind when we think of such a person? From the history of the church. St. Abram, right? You know, St. Abram... Like, he got in trouble with the church for how generous he was. Like, like he, was, he was rejected for how generous he was. The people were against him because he was so generous. That anytime any amount of donation would come, he would immediately give it to the poor. Actually, after he became a bishop, the people were trying to raise money so they could build, like, his residence and to build, like, the, the bishopric, you know, center, like, the, his headquarters, right, that he, would, that he would live in and that he would have and even for the purpose of service. And anytime anyone would donate any money, he would immediately give it to the poor. And the people were like, well, how are we going to, we, we won't be able to build. You know, we're not going to be able to do all these things that we're wanting to do. He would, like, people would come to him cheating him and lying to him. And he would know for a fact that they were lying to him and he would still give them the money, right? So he gave, this is exactly what he did. He dispersed, you know? And in the end, God provided all of the needs. 
right? God gave him and the church and everything, everything that they needed because he saw like the pure heart of this man and the love that he had for him because he understood that it is not the money that brings salvation. It is not the money, you know. We think often in terms of, of the resources, the money, like um, what is it that we have in order to serve people, okay? But God actually is looking for those who are willing to serve him, whether there's resources or not, and then God will bring the resources. God will bring. And, and actually, this is the way that his grace, Bishop Yusuf, operates. Like, he'll go find some place with just like one Coptic person, you know? And many people will say, well, there's, there's not enough people here to have a community or to have a church or whatever. Just tell this person that however often they, need, they want to go and pray in the liturgy, go travel to the nearest city, which could be a few hours away, and go pray liturgy there, right? And that's it. But his philosophy is, if there is anyone at all in the city that wants a church, even if it's just a couple of families, then we will start a community there. We will assign a priest to come and start praying there periodically. And eventually, when the people grow, then we can have a full-time church. And there are many, many churches that we have in the diocese that started out as being kind of like a place where it's like, well, this is the, the, there was never going to be a church here. You know, like there's not enough people. There's not enough resources. There's not enough, you know. But, but if you look at the way that God blesses over time, um, God, God makes a way. Now, may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. Okay, so who is the one who supplies? It is God. He, may he who supplies seed to the sower. Again, it goes to the heart of who is doing the work. We, when we do work, we attribute the work to ourselves. When I wake up in the morning and I go to my job, I'm thinking, okay, I'm the one who's doing this work, right? Just as a sower, someone who is planting seed is the one who gets up early to plant the seed. But he is saying, who is the one who gave him the seed to plant? You know, it is God who gave seed. Who is the one who gave bread for food? Who is the one who has given all of these things and who has allowed the seed to increase? So while we are a part of work that we do in the world, Definitely, we are, we are a part. God is not going to bless the work of a person who is lazy, who doesn't want to, uh, to do anything. Right? So there, there's definitely a component, a very important component. We can't say, I'm just going to stay in bed all day, and God is going to multiply my bank account, and he's going to multiply everything. Everything's going to be, you know, all the service is going to be done, you know, just because God is blessing it. Uh, no. There is a component. The sower is the one who has to wake up early to sow. But everything else here in this equation is given by God, right? God is the one who supplies the seed. He is the one who supplies the bread for food. He is the one who multiplies the seed, right? Increases the fruit. He's the one who does all those things. So while we are working, we cannot look at our work and say that our work is the reason for any blessing. Our work is the reason for any success in our life or in the lives of other people. God is the one who takes our meager efforts and our meager resources and he multiplies them and multiplies them and multiplies them, right? And enriches everyone and enriches us by his grace. So God is really the source of all good things, both for us 
and for them and here for the Corinthians. God is blessing the Corinthians. God is blessing the apostles. God is blessing the Christians in Jerusalem that are being persecuted. All of those things. And the apostles are thanking God for the generosity of the Corinthians, right? Which causes thanksgiving through us to God. Like the apostles and Paul is saying what we are thanking God because of you. We are thanking God because he is using you as a means of blessing these um, displaced and, and persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgiving, uh, thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you, because of the exceeding grace of God in you. So, so here, St. Paul is listing many of the benefits of this joyful giving. Many of the blessings that we receive from joyful giving. Okay, what, what are some of the things he mentions? The first one is, we are fulfilling the needs of the, of the saints. Right? We are supplying the needs of the saints, obviously. Right? That's number one. Okay? Um, the gladness of heart that we receive through this work, right, that, that, that um, the giver is offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord. So the person who is giving, okay, is, is actually joyful in their giving, right? God loves a cheerful giver. So we are joyful at the work of God. We are joyful at seeing the result of this service. Like anyone who has seen like a, a poor person after having received like a gift, the joy that they have and the feeling that God is protecting them and being with them and how like, like we see that the effect that it has in their lives, right? That's definitely um, a, a very big source of joy. There's also a feeling of obedience, right? And a joyful submission. Whenever we are successful in obeying God, especially when it's difficult, um, there is a sense of like inner joy that we are following in the, in the, in the, in the works of Christ, that we are giving to God what he has asked of us. Just as there is a feeling of guilt and sadness when we disobey God, there is also a feeling of joy when we obey him. And especially when it is difficult, because it is during the difficult times that it is really a challenge. Like it is really painful sometimes to follow and to obey. Those are the times that has the greatest blessing of obedience because it is hard to obey and we choose to obey. When we give right? When we tithe, when it's hard to tithe, when we tithe, when our income is low, when we tithe, when we're already in debt, when we tithe, when we don't feel any kind of financial security, and yet we choose to tithe, this brings with it the blessing of obedience. And God will multiply more and more the grace that he gives us because of this um, obedience that we have. Also, um, not only the giver, but the hearts of the receivers of this gift also glorify God, right? Because when I am receiving a gift, I feel that God is actually the one who is showing his love to me. You know, if you've ever been in a situation where you're in trouble and God, like, rescues you from your situation, whether it be from a financial perspective or from any other kind of trouble that you're in, and God comes and he rescues you from the situation through some kind of means where it's kind of you see all the circumstances play out, and you say, wow, like God saved me at the last minute. Like there could have been like a disastrous outcome, 
but God protected me from it, right? This, um, you know, th this, this, this brings a sense of peace and joy and, and that we glorify God for what, what he has done, okay? And we realize that God is the one who is involved in our lives because this is what we want to feel. We, we want to feel that God is involved. We don't want to feel like God is distant, that he's far away, that our prayers aren't reaching him. So when we see that God is involved, we realize that God is not distant, that God has not abandoned us, that God is involved in our lives, and we can see like his fingerprints on the things that are happening around us. So that's very important, right? That those who are receiving this gift are comforted because they feel like God is attentive to their needs, even though this gift is coming through another person. But God uses it as like a, a, a last-minute like rescue to make us feel like he is actually involved. Like, I don't remember if I said this story before, but there was one time many years ago that we had um, chosen a day to make like uh, lunch bags of like, I think it was, I think it was lunch, like it was food. And we were going to donate it to a specific uh, place in Houston. And when we got to the place, we had made all the bags and everything. When we got to the place, I don't remember what happened, but for some reason, either they were closed or they couldn't accept it or something where we didn't have anywhere to give these bags, you know, like the place that we had prepared them for didn't accept them for whatever reason. So we just started like randomly calling places that were in the area that we thought maybe these places could receive. I mean, we didn't want to throw them away. But we had how we had this food. So we found um, a place that was very close by where Normally, on I think once a week, there would be another group that donates food to them on a weekly basis. But for some reason that week, they could not or did not. And so those people didn't receive the food that they normally receive. And so when we contacted them on that day specifically, they saw it as like God is attentive to their needs. And actually the number of, of bags that we had was exactly the number that they needed. So we felt like, all of us felt like this is from God, like God is involved in the service when we are here making bags and all this stuff. It wasn't just a human idea. It wasn't just, hey, this, this would be nice if we do this. It was God's involvement in it that put in the hearts of those who, who did this service and, and to call those people and, and that God met the needs of those people in the end. So the, obviously those people feel very much how God is attentive to them. And we also felt like God is caring for them. And, he's, and he's, he's giving us the blessing of being the ones who are able to serve them. So there are many benefits, right, of, of giving. And here St. Paul is emphasizing that. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, right? Like this is, again, thanksgiving to God for all his gifts that he gives, both to the giver and to the one receiving the gift. Okay. <clears throat> Any questions about this chapter before we go on to the next chapter? <clears throat> okay. Here, uh, St. Paul switches gears. So he was talking for some time about the ministry to the saints, about giving to the poor and so on. And now he, 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 he's switching again to his apostleship, to defending his apostleship against false teachers, protecting the Corinthians from believing in these false teachers and the false teachings that they're teaching, okay, and the spiritual warfare. So he says, now I, Paul, myself, 
am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. Okay. So what does this mean? So um, St. Paul, some people say that St. Paul's appearance was not very impressive. You know, like maybe he was a short person. He didn't, he didn't wear fancy clothes. He wasn't luxurious. He didn't have any pomp about him. You know, he's a very humble man, right? He didn't, he didn't come in with a sense of authority or come in like, you know, you would look at him and you say, wow, look at this person, right? So he, he, he looked very simple, okay? But when he would write his letters, right, he, he's speaking with great authority, right? And he is rebuking and he is commanding, and he is exhorting, and he is saying all these things. So some people are saying about him that, you know, he sounds so bold in his letters, and we have a certain, you know, uh, image of who this man is, who is coming and writing these letters to us. But when he comes, you know, he's like nothing like what we imagined him to be, and he's almost like unimpressive, and we're not very, like, we're not very excited. Like we're not, we, we don't feel him to be like this person. And maybe some people would even like doubt his authority just based on this. Okay. Um, also, there were some people who say that the Corinthians, the Jewish Corinthians, okay. Um, the, the Judaizers, okay. Who wanted the Corinthians to practice the Mosaic law and be circumcised. So, right. So there were, there were the, the, the Christians who were converts from, uh, from the Gentiles, right, from pagan religions. And then there were Christians who were converts from the Jewish religion. And some of the converts from the Jew Jewish religion to Christianity were called the Judaizers because they believed that in addition to the Christian commandments, um, all of the Christians should also be following the law of Moses. The law of Moses, as outlined in the book of uh, Leviticus and the book of Exodus, where um, for instance, circumcision, which was um, one of the main um, uh, laws in the Old Testament that was necessary for any Jewish person to be circumcised. So even though they are now Christians, they are still pushing this idea of circumcision. And some people claim that St. Paul uh, secretly was following this law, even though publicly he was condemning it. So publicly in his letters, he would say that circumcision and following the law of Moses is not necessary for Christianity, for Christians. But these people were accusing him of saying that even though he is saying this publicly, but secretly, he actually was following the law of Moses and he actually was holding to it. And so again, there is like a disparity between the person that he really is and the person that he appears to be, okay? So he's writing these powerful words, he has these teachings, but in reality, he's not what he He's not the person who he appears to be in his letters, and even the things that he's doing and believing are different. So this is what they're accusing him. Who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. This is what they're saying about him. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Okay, what does this mean? I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. 
has uh, followed the precepts that I have laid out for you, so I don't rebuke you the same way that I would rebuke someone who doesn't follow. Very good. That's exactly right. So he's saying, I am writing all these letters of rebuke and being bold in my letters because I'm wanting to give you the right teaching. But I don't want my visit to you to be char characterized only by rebuke and being upset and telling you that you're wrong and condemning you for your sins. And no, I want, I want to have a positive relationship with you. And I come with a humble demeanor to have a positive relationship with you. It is not because <clears throat> in reality, I'm not the same person. Okay. So um, if you remember when St. Paul had promised in the first epistle to the Corinthians that he would come to visit them. And then he did, could not come visit them. And in the second epistle that we're studying now, he spoke to them about the reasons why he couldn't come visit them. And one of the reasons he gave was that he wanted to give them enough time since his first letter so that they would have the opportunity to change. Because he didn't want them to still be struggling with the same problems so that when he comes in person, he is like rehashing the same things and it is not a pleasant visit. He wanted to give them time in order for them to address those issues so that when he comes, it can be a more pleasant visit. And so the same, the same kind of on the same lines here, he's saying, I don't want to be bold to you when I'm here, right? I, I want to be gentle here. I want to be humble, right? I don't want to, to do that which is harsh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. So in response to these accusations against him, right? He's saying that even though he is a human being living in the world, he does not act in a worldly way, pretending to be one way but living another. Because he's, he's, he's defending himself and saying, you are accusing me of living according to the flesh. You're accusing me of pretending to be something that I am not, right? And this is the worldly way, right? So he says, even though I am in the flesh, I am a human being and I live in the world, but I do not war according to the flesh, meaning I am not living according to the flesh. I am not going to treat you according to the ways of the world, but according to the spiritual way, right? So I am, I, I, they attributed to him wrong motives. They treated to him like a sinful attitude, a deceptive attitude, right? And so he's saying, I am not um, living according to the flesh. I am living only according to the spirit, okay? So this war, he's saying that I am waging, it is a war against the devil. We do not war according to the flesh, meaning my whole ministry, which is a war, is not being waged according to the flesh. I am not simply trying to use human persuasion, human techniques, human deception, human flattery, human threats, human whatever, in order to achieve the goal of my ministry. Because that, I do not walk according to the flesh, right? Those are the ways you would expect a worldly person or a worldly institution to behave. But I am not just preaching Christianity. I am living Christianity. I'm living according to the message that I am preaching. So his war, his preaching, his uh, ministry, right, is not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit of God. Because you cannot wage this war um, by human effort. And the only means of success in this battle is to fight spiritually and not hypocritically. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds. Right? Very, this is a very famous verse. Right? 
For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. So what are these strongholds that he's speaking about here? And what are these weapons of warfare? Evil. Okay. So expand on that. What is a stronghold? Okay, like a false religion. What is what is literally a stronghold? Yeah, so it's like part of like a fortress, right? The stronghold is like the most protected, difficult to penetrate fortress, right? It's it's something that that is not easy to overcome. So he's saying here the devil and his kingdom, they set up strongholds in our lives right they set up strongholds in our lives and these strongholds are not simple things that we are just going to go and say you know what i have an addiction i'm just going to stop the addiction you know i have a bad habit i'm just going to stop the bad habit because they're strongholds you know you, you don't you don't go up to a stronghold in a real war just one person be like let me in you know like like kicking you out you know and you take you take it over no a stronghold is like the last thing that you can conquer. It is powerful. It's strong. And, and, and it is um, a stronghold of the demons, you know, not even a stronghold of humans. So in order for us to conquer the strongholds, right, because this is what God is commanding. This is why some people, like, when they, when they look at the commandments of God, right, what is it that God is commanding us to do? If you really look at everything God is commanding us to do, it seems daunting, you know. And think you shouldn't have addictions and you should have pure thoughts. And when you lust in your mind, it is the same as adultery. And when you hate in your thoughts, it's the same as murder. And you should forgive your enemies and you should love them and you should pray for them and you should sacrifice to them for them. Like all the things that the Christianity is calling us to do are very difficult. And while we are being asked to do all these things, we have all of our weaknesses. We have all of our biases. We have all of our fears. We have all of our, you know, like failures. We have all these things. So these strongholds that God is asking us in order for us to overcome these things and essentially to become sanctified, to become saints, right? Saints in the sense of the canonized saints, right? Like to be saints, like to be, to be holy and righteous, okay? In order for us to get to there to where god wants us to go from where we are we have to ask ourselves by by what means by what tools can i use to fight this fight because it is a fight and it is a fight that we are called to to wage this is why when we speak about in the church okay that we are accepting of people we are accepting of everyone you know and we say what everyone is accepted okay, what, do we, what do we mean when we say everyone is accepted we say, we are accepting you as a warrior. We are accepting you to come here because you are a fellow warrior and you are going to fight. And you're going to fight with us in this war. Not, we are accepting you to come for a vacation. You know, not we are accepting you to come so you can just like sit back and do nothing. Right? This is a, a place of war. We are asking you to come to fight. And so anyone who comes, yes, we accept anyone. 
regardless of your background, regardless of your past, regardless of your weakness or sin or whatever. But if you come here, we're expecting you to fight. And here he is giving these weapons. He's saying, if you want to defeat the strongholds of Satan, if you want to overcome those addictions and those weaknesses and those things that are debilitating and those things that we have tried to defeat for many times and have failed again and again and again, he says what? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. So who is the one who defeats Satan? Who is the one who conquers the stronghold? It is not us. It is the weapons that God gives. This is why in Ephesians chapter 6, when St. Paul speaks about the armor of God, all the armor is, is about God. We are putting it on, yes, but it is not our own. It is the armor of God that we have chosen to put on. It is the weapons of warfare that we have chosen to wield. And in order for me to conquer really this stronghold and to wage this war, I have to do this, right? Which is why many people, you know, I don't, I don't want to wage the war. I'm comfortable where I am, you know, stronghold, strongholds. I'll just live my life the best that I can, you know, as I am without any war, without any fighting, without any sacrifice, without any pain, right? Or so we think. But meanwhile, the devil is conquering us more. Meanwhile, the devil is, is, is getting a stronger hold, a stronger grip on us because we are refusing to fight. So here St. Paul is making it clear, okay, that he is fighting this spiritual war. What is it that made St. Paul so successful in his war? It is because he saw God as his weapon. God was the weapon. And he sacrificed and, and gave his life to God so that in God, he was able to accomplish all the things that he did things that no human being we could look at and say this could have ever been accomplished for him to, 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 to be as successful as he was in evangelism, to be as successful as he was, to experience all the suffering that he did and to continue without falling apart and collapsing, right? This is because he waged this war with the weapons of warfare. He did not use human manipulation. He did not flatter anyone. He did not fear anyone. He did not bear grudges against anyone. His battle was against the devil and not against any human being, right? <clears throat> this actually, like when I was thinking about this, it, the idea of um, politics came into my mind. There are people who are Christians, who are good believers, that get sucked into politics. They get sucked into it into a way where we begin to imagine that the enemy is a political party and not the devil. So we begin to imagine that if we can win political battles, then we will have won the battle. And it becomes that winning the political battle becomes the most important thing. We want to win the political battle. We want to change the laws. We want to make the laws to be Christian laws. We want the people to have Christian values. We don't want to be imposed on us all of these non-Christian things that are defiling. Okay, good. But the, 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 the goal here is not to win a political battle because a political battle is a short-lived victory. It is a victory that's a temporary victory. It's not a permanent victory. The permanent victory is to change the person. The permanent victory is that for each person to be filled with the light of Christ, to be sanctified so that their thoughts and their mind are free from the influence of Satan. That is the true victory. So while there is some overlap between the political and the spiritual, 
there cannot the, the political is by far not as important as the spiritual. If everybody focused on the spiritual, on the actual change and transformation inside, then the political will come. You know, the laws will change. The, the people will change, okay? Because behind all of what we imagine and see to be human groups and human laws and human philosophies, what is behind all of this is like the puppet master is Satan. So he is so successful because we don't realize he is there. We don't pay attention to him. And we don't realize that the true weapon against him is not political lobbying because political lobbying cannot touch him. Political lobbying cannot, cannot, cannot do anything to him. What can do anything to him is prayer. Can do anything to him is fasting. Can do anything to him is repentance. These are the things that, 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 that he cannot stand. These are the things that hurt him, right? Not political donations. I'm not saying not to be involved in politics. I'm not saying that it's not important. But I am saying that it is not enough. Okay, it is not enough. There, there is something that has to be done beyond this, right? If we really want to see a positive change in the world, if we really want to see that Christianity is a positive influence on the world, then we begin with ourselves and we wield these weapons of warfare in our own lives and we encourage others to do the same. The weapons are, are, are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, so kind of to tie it back to the last chapter and giving and serving and all of that, I know all of that is good and God uses everything for good, but kind of to your example of where we just auto deposit our tithe into like some account and just do that. And what you just said, how do we not get sucked into just doing things and saying that like oh like because i'm doing a hundred different things we're fighting the war or whatever and like losing track of the fact that it should be grounded in our like spiritual walk that's a very good question um it is so easy for us as christians to get bogged down by over activity over like physical activity like we want to have a lot of services and we want to have a lot of services for the kids. And we want to serve the poor. And we want to um, have like uh, the, the church to be full of people and to do this and that. And those things are good, okay? But those things are good because they are supporting the one thing that is the real thing, okay? Which is the spiritual union with God. Everything that we do should be toward spiritual union with God. Actually, it is possible for someone to be fighting against sin as vanity. Like, let's say my, 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 the reason that I want to fight against sin is because I can't stand the idea of being imperfect. I can't stand the idea of other people seeing me as being imperfect. And so I have to be perfect. So I'm going to fight against sin. And I'm going to fast, not because I want to be in union with God, but because I can't stand imperfection in myself. It's vanity. It's idol worship. Because my goal is not God. The only goal of the Christian is union with God. That is the only goal. Because in eternity, what is it that we have? In eternity, all there is is union with God. That is the only 
joy. That is the only thing that we want in eternity. So while we are on earth, the, the goal that we have should not be to stop sinning. There are people who are atheists that sin less than us. The fact that they don't sin, does that, does that mean that they're saved? Our, our goal should not be we want to have a lot of services. Our goal should not be we want to listen to a lot of sermons. Our goal is to be in union with God. And so that everything else that I do is to support that goal. So if I listen to sermons, it's not because I feel good about myself because I listen to a lot of sermons. It's because I want to listen to learn how to be in union with God. When I do services in the church, it's not because I enjoy doing services or I like spending time with people. It's because I want those services to be for the salvation of those people, right? It's the difference between Martha and Mary, right? Martha was doing all the busyness, but she wasn't doing it for the right reasons and she wasn't doing it at the right time, right? Her goal was from the outside, good. Like, obviously, if, if Jesus is in your house and you want to give him food, you're going to have to go and prepare. Like, from a human perspective, it sounds very reasonable and rational what she was doing. But she was rebuked by Jesus. She was rebuked by him. He told her what Mary has chosen what is better. Because her goal was being in union with God. And in that moment, she thought, it doesn't matter whether there's food. It doesn't matter whether there's anything. Because I'm not going to give up this opportunity of being with the Lord for the sake of food. You know, she, she had that perspective. So for us to be successful in the church and as, as believers, we have to put first and foremost that my goal is union with God and everything else has to support that. And if it doesn't support it, it is idol worship. It is doing things for the wrong reason. It is not the weapons, it is, it is not the weapons that are mighty in God, right? The way that we um, live our life should be desiring to be with God only and everything else to support that, right? So when it comes to tithing, right, it's not just oh, I give a lot of money. No, why are you giving it? Am I giving it because I want to serve the people for the sake of their salvation? Even when it comes to community service, like you can do community service out of vanity. You know, if all of my entire goal of community service is I just want to feed people. Okay, good. You're feeding people and that's a good thing. But why are you feeding them? What are you feeding them? What is the point of feeding someone if that person then doesn't have the opportunity to believe Right? I'm feeding their body, but I'm not feeding their soul, which is why even when we do community service, evangelism needs to be an important aspect and part of community service, which is, yes, obviously, if we have the opportunity to speak to them about the Lord, okay, but obviously, sometimes we don't have that opportunity, or it's not allowed, or we don't have the, it's not set up such that we can do that easily, but at the very least, they should know that we are a church, at the very least, that, you know, I always say that we should serve a group of people consistently if possible so that we can develop a relationship with them because the whole goal of feeding them is not to say I have fed them. The whole goal of feeding them is say now that you have seen the love of God working in your life, come and experience the true love of God, the spiritual love of God, right? That's why when um, Christ sent the 70 apostles out to preach, he told them to first heal the sick and to feed them and to like take care of all of their needs first. And then once you have taken care of their needs, now they will listen. Now you can prepare the way for me to come. 
So the, the physical service is important, but the physical service is not sufficient by itself. The physical, the physical service is just the first step in the spiritual service. Because the only thing that matters is the spiritual service. The, the physical service, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. The, the physical service only sustains us temporarily. The spiritual service sustains us eternally. So if, if I am doing physical service, whether in Sunday school, or in community service, or in preaching, or in whatever, even in spiritual practices and asceticism. If I'm doing these things only for the physical, only for vain reasons, only for temporary reasons, then it is not effective. The, the only thing that matters is the spiritual service. Everything else supports that, which means there is physical service. But that physical service can't be like an end into itself. You know what I mean? I don't know if that answered your question. Okay. <clears throat> Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The one with the spiritual understanding that is filled with the power of God, can see through human foolishness, hypocrisy, and ignorance. The, the one who has truly the mind of Christ can see foolishness, ignorance, hypocrisy, lawlessness for what it is in the world. Not deceived by it, not confused by it, can label it as it should be labeled, the way that Christ would label it. That when he saw the... Fair, the, the, the people exchanging money in the temple, the money changers, that he didn't look at this in a, in a false way, in a confused way. He didn't say to himself, you know what, this is wrong, but for the sake of not hurting people's feelings, um, I'm just not going to say anything. You know, he didn't, he, 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 didn't, he didn't try to rationalize. He didn't say, well, you know what, people need to exchange money, so we might as well do it in the church. Actually, it's a perfect example because... The church is not a place for worldly activity. The church is a place only for the spiritual activity. And those people had turned the temple into a place of worldly activity, right? When we are able to look at the world and, and clearly understand, why? Because we are wielding these weapons of warfare that are mighty in God and not carnal. We can see the world. We can understand the fallacies. We can understand the, the pitfalls in, that are in the world, and we can navigate them without being so deceived by every wind and wave of doctrine, with, with every social media post that completely turns everyone upside down and confused. There's no reason for us to be confused. There's no reason for me to be deceived. I know clearly what I believe. It doesn't matter if 10 billion other people say something. I know what I believe. I know what is true. I don't rely on the other people to tell me what is true, I rely only on God to tell me what is true. And it doesn't matter what other people say, right? These weapons cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What does it mean that every thought is brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ? Every thought that I have becomes sanctified in Christ. Every thought that I have, whether it's a good thought 
that then my mind accepts and says, this is a good thought. This is a right thought. You should act on this thought. Or where, whether it is an evil, twisted thought, you know? And that thought, my mind says, this is a wrong thought. You should not act on this thought. If you look at the apostles, the apostles are very simple, uneducated people. Very uneducated people. They were fishermen. They didn't have philosophy degrees, right? But they would stand in front of the Greek philosophers and they would speak their simple words that are mighty and powerful and no one could respond to them. Why is it that they, they were martyred? Because they were too strong. Because people didn't know what to do with them. They were too influential that even with their simplicity, that they can speak the truth about God that pierces the hearts of people and people want to follow after them and, and follow their teaching so that there was nothing else that could be done but to kill them. They couldn't disprove them. They couldn't tell the people that this is false and don't listen to them. The people followed them. People, like the whole world became Christian at one point. That world anyway. So this is the power of these weapons, okay? And this is the power of bringing every thought into captivity, okay? Sadly, we live in a time today where the thoughts of people are confused. Um, St. John Chrysostom, he says, as a courageous hero, he, he captivates every mind to the obedience of Christ, casting away the fantasies and every haughtiness raised against the knowledge of God. All that is realized through the epistles he left for us filled with divine wisdom and are of benefit to us to prove the vanity of the corrupt views, to establish the right faith and to reach a better life, right? To reach a better life. This is what we are offering to the world. We should not be surprised if the world rejects it. You know, we should not be surprised. Actually, just this past week, there was a very prominent Eastern Orthodox priest who has like a... He, he, he has a Facebook page. I think his name is Father Trifon. Yeah, and, uh, and he's well known in like the Orthodox community. And Facebook removed his page without giving any reason. He, and, he, and he lost everything that he had. Right? This is the world that we live now. And it's going to continue. That, that, that people cannot withstand the sound of the truth. Like, you know how when St. Stephen was giving his oration... Then at the end of his oration, proving to the Pharisees that their ancestors were actually wicked, that they are the ones who killed the prophets, and that, and that these people should not be so proud of the fact that they were the sons of the prophets, proving that Christ, you know, as the Messiah, that they're the ones who killed him, they couldn't withstand it. Like, it says what, they, they, they're like, their ears burned. Like, they couldn't, they couldn't withstand what he had to say, and they rushed at him and destroyed him and stoned him. Like, this is where we are now, that when someone speaks the truth, those who are living in darkness cannot bear the truth. They cannot listen to the truth. And they want to silence everyone who speaks the truth. And this is where we cannot compromise, right? This is truly where we can say that we are the salt of the earth, that we are, that we are fulfilling our mission in the world as evangelists, that I will not be silenced. I will not be afraid to stop speaking the truth, whether at a personal level or at a church level or whatever level, because then the darkness wins. If I am truly a believer, if I truly am a believer, 
then I have to be a believer like in the early church who realizes that to say that I believe in God, that I believe in Christ, could be even a death sentence. That's how they lived. To be a Christian was a death sentence for them. And I'm not saying that we're at that point necessarily right now, but there is certainly... Uh, we can be ostracized, we can be shut down, we can be canceled, we can be deleted, we can be harassed, we can be whatever, simply for stating the things that have been written in the Bible for thousands of years, that Christians have believed for thousands of years. Nothing new here. You know, we're not preaching anything new. We, we didn't come up with some new teaching, and now suddenly this teaching is offensive to people. No, we are preaching the same teaching that has existed for thousands of years, but suddenly now the people can no longer bear it, cannot even stand the fact that human beings could believe this, right? That even though we are, we are not going to their places and we're telling them, change your life, change your, the way that you live. If, if, if you want to live that way, live. Well, I can't stop you. But they are trying to stop us from believing what we believe and trying to make, it, make us to feel like we are the bigots and we are the racists and we are the intolerant and we are the everything for not for, for not doing anything for not changing they're the ones who are changing they're the ones who are every day and every week and every year changing 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 and so when we stop and we say you know what we are not going to change with you we are not going to um, allow your philosophies what you believe to infect us we are going to stay preaching and teaching and believing the same thing that we always have whether you like it or you don't like it, whether you cancel us or you don't cancel us, regardless, we are going to teach the same thing. We are the same. We are the Orthodox Church. There is nothing that will change. So, so again, they cannot handle that. And they cannot handle that the truth is the same, just as the Lord said, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. <clears throat> and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Disobedience is punished when obedience is fulfilled, right? What does that mean? It means that disobedience is eradicated when it is exposed to the light of Christ, right? Like when, when, when someone, when one of us is living in darkness and disobedience, when we taste the, the the light of christ the love of christ that we are filled with the spirit of god that it like eradicates that that's what it means to punish here the word punish doesn't mean um like as though someone is actually coming to punish you for something no it means the disobedience being punished it's like the disobedience is eradicated which means that when someone who is living in sin discovers the love of god they will not want to have anything to do with that disobedience anymore the disobedience in our life will be eradicated will be dis, will be will disappear it will it will it will be forced out because we choose never to live like this again right this is the 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 obedience we spoke about earlier a few weeks ago about how the promise of god was that he would be our father and we would be his sons and daughters and that our response to that promise was to live a life of sanctification okay and this here is the same that when we are filled with the love of god the spirit of god and we realize that god is the one 
who fills us with knowledge, with understanding, with life, with hope, with meaning, with all these things, that we have no desire to live in disobedience to him. And that we are willing to take up those weapons of warfare and to fight this fight because what he offers us is greater than anything that is offered in the world and there is nothing that compares with him. So I'm willing to give up everything because everything doesn't matter. And that's exactly what St. Paul said when he said, what, I count everything as rubbish. Everything is rubbish. Everything is garbage. Nothing else matters. The only thing that matters is to be with the Lord. And this is where our goal should be. And maybe this is difficult, you know, and I'm not trying to say that this is easy. And certainly to, to reach the, the, the point where St. Paul was is not an easy place. But that should be a goal of ours that we set for ourselves. This should be our desire, our heart's desire, that we want to be like him. When he says, imitate me like I imitate Christ, we want to live like him. And we see in him an example of living. We see in, in him an example of sacrifice. We want to be like him. And we believe that if we wield these weapons, then we can be successful. Not the weapons of man, not warring according to the flesh, like St. Paul says, but the weapons that are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. This is the weapons. These are the weapons that we use to be transformed, to be changed, to become who God wants us to be. So this is a, a good stopping point for us. This is a very important thing for us to take away from today, okay, is that we are called to live a certain way. We are called to live in a standard that is higher than that of the world. And that doesn't make us better than the world. Because we are, we, are, we, are, we are made of dust, just like the rest of the world. We are not better than the world. Our boasting is not that we are better. Our boasting is not that we are righteous. Our boasting is that the work of God in us is what gives us life. And we want the rest of the world to taste the same life that we have. This is our boasting. This is our desire. This is our joy. So when we stand up against the world, we are standing up against the devil. We are not standing against people. We want to save those people. We want to bring those people to the light of Christ, the light that we have received. We want other people to share in, right? Our enemy is, is, the, is, the, is the devil. We want to save we want to show mercy. We want to show kindness. We want to show love. But we also must rebuke and we must teach and we must direct and not allow ourselves to be consumed by, to be dissolved in the world. We have to stand up for what we believe regardless of the consequence. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Yes. Sorry. So what you mentioned earlier about... Um, like in verse four and five, um, I think uh, one thing that uh, I believe the my, uh, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church and also the Coptic Church is struggling with is uh, in regards to the youth and ministering to the youth. Um, how do we like to keep it short? How do we discern like what lengths we're supposed to go in the name of ministering to the youth? Like how much? Like how? Like how much? Uh, where do we draw the line? I guess. Give me an example of what lines you're talking about. What do you, what is a line? Okay. So, um, uh, let's say like the rites of the liturgy. So like usually in, uh, Egypt, for example, I'm assuming is that the rites of the liturgy would be in, uh, in Arabic and Coptic mostly. And then now when we come here, there's 
translation to English and then also re reincorporating English into the hymnology, hymnody. And then, yeah, so uh, like that, that's kind of like low level. But then like when it comes to like really like high level uh, social dilemmas, uh, the the go-to of the Egyptian Orthodox Church in, in Egypt would be like more like a conservative approach. But then like here it would be a little bit more liberal. I don't know. Like I'm just giving like a, an example. So like how, like where do we draw the line of like, like this is what the church stance would be. Like what this is what Christ would say, like based on the, the, the scripture or do we like defer to, you know, like how, how, what, where do we draw the line when it comes to ministering to the youth and like newcomers, I guess. So when it comes, we have to understand the difference between culture and dogma, right? Dogma is the faith that was handed down to us by Christ. And the dogma doesn't change. And the dogma doesn't matter where you live or what language you speak or anything at all. It's the same because the dogma is the truth. What is the truth? The truth is one. Okay. But the way that different churches and different cultures with different languages, living in different places, express that dogma can be different. And there's no problem with that, right? So we have to understand what is dogma. And so, and a lot of times people are, are confused about this, like even in the Coptic church, like, you know, like you have a, a youth who has Egyptian parents and the parents tell them, uh, you can't wear short skirts. And the response is, we are not living in Egypt anymore. And this is the Egyptian culture. It has nothing to do with the Egyptian culture has to do with what is what is what is what is our our faith like the the moral precepts of our faith has nothing to do with egyptian culture right it has to do with chastity in which chastity is a virtue it has nothing to do with with a culture but then you, you come to like a language right language has nothing to do with orthodoxy it has nothing to do with faith dogma it's all it's all it's a hundred percent uh, an expression from a group of, pe of people living in a certain place. So, when you when you're when you're considering what can change and what can't, the short answer is cultural things can change and dogmatic things can't. Who? But you know, it's not always straightforward, right? Like there are some things that are more of a gray area. Of, oh, is this culture? Is this dogma? For instance, if somebody wanted to shorten the liturgy, um, is that considered culture or dogma? Um, changing the rights, for instance, is is um, the rights have been changed in the church all throughout generations and generations. There's nothing dogmatic about the rights we have. You know, we have three different liturgies. How many in your church? How many liturgies do you have? Twenty. Yeah, it's a lot. You know, the Eastern Orthodox they have different liturgies. I, there was a, a full deacon that I had met from um, uh, an Orthodox church in Seattle. I met him at the seminary. He was an American convert. He was a deacon, though. Um, and he told me that in their parish, they have like 14 different languages represented. And on feast days, when they say the Our Father prayer, they say it 14 times in 14 different languages, right? So everybody can express their faith in a different way. In the Coptic church, we have our book of hours. In your church, you have a different book of hours, right? You know, so, so, so there's nothing wrong with different types of expression. And actually, different types of expression is beautiful because you, you learn from the other cultures and you can say, wow, look at this prayer that they have in there. Like, it's a beautiful prayer, you know? And people come in archers and say, wow, this is a beautiful thing. So there is, there should be no shortage of different people expressing their faith to God in different ways. But ultimately, the synod 
of the church, in order to maintain order, right, has to decide what is the appropriate uh, rules, rights, you know, for, for a specific church. Just like you would have in a household, the parents of one household are going to decide that their kids are going to go to bed at nine, and another household says our kids can go to bed at 10. There isn't a right and wrong, but they're different. One family has a certain economy and another family has a different economy. So that's okay that there's differences. But which one is right and wrong? This is not a, this is not, this, th th there isn't an answer, okay? Some people might argue like, okay, uh, if, we, if we say something in the colloquial language of the country, that's good because then more people understand, you know? And if you say it in another language, that people don't understand, then people won't, like, I, I think in, in your church, um, even the sermons are like in, uh, or is in the Retrian church, the sermons are given in Giz, right? Right. And I've heard personally, I mean, from several youth that they don't understand Giz, so they don't understand the sermon, you know, but that's a decision that was made and that decision can change. Right. Because and it's up to the priests, it's up to the, the bishops, it's up to, uh, you know, I don't want to get involved in the in the details of that. Right. Because I don't know. All I'm saying is that's something that can change. You know, even in our liturgy, many things have changed over the years. You know, like, you know, the procession that we're about to do during Palm Sunday, which is a procession that we go around the church and we have these 12 stations in front of the icons that used to be done in the city outdoors, it used to be done outside. And only because of persecution that the Christians are out in the city were getting stoned that they brought it inside of the church. So all these things change, and there's so many changes, right? But the faith is what doesn't change. That's the, the core of, of what we have. And that is actually what will be in common, for the most part, between all the Orthodox churches in the world, right? And one of the ways that you discover what is culture versus what is dogma is you look at what every Orthodox church believes, right? That can't be culture because there's so many different cultures, right? So if everybody believes the same about something, then most likely that is dogma, right? But it takes a lot of study to understand that and, and to find that, you know, what is that? Yeah. Any other comments or questions? Okay. Let's oh. Oh. Uh, but can I say something very quick? Yeah. So, in verse, oh, yeah, it's after nine in verse ten, I believe. Uh, uh you talked about, um, um, yeah, you, you talked about, um, oh, you said that, uh, that, that, uh, God doesn't want people to be lazy. So, my input on that is there's a human part. And, and a divine part. So in other words, if I if I don't do my part, then then there's always God, there's always God is gonna do his part. So I mean as long as we do our part, God will do his part. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I agree. We have to do our part and God is not gonna do our part for us. Thank you, Mina. Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, and we thank you, O Lord, for this great fast period that we're in today, and this, this period that reminds us, O Lord, of 
the vanity of this world and how the things, O oh God, that are attractive to us in this life are really of no value. We ask, O oh God, that you strengthen our faith as individuals and that you strengthen the faith of the church as a whole, that we are here in a place that some might consider to be a hostile, hostile land toward the church. We thank you, O oh God, for being with us and for showing us your mercy and your grace and your love. We ask, O oh God, for your strength and to be determined and to be consistent and to be faithful to what we believe both in our minds and in our practices, in our spirit, in our hearts, in every way, O oh God, to be faithful to you. We ask, O oh God, that you fill us with a spirit of repentance and you give us hope knowing that whenever we fall short of your commandments, that you accept us again to you and you, you pick us up and allow us to continue in our spiritual struggle. We ask, O oh God, that you help us to pick up these weapons of warfare that are mighty in God, that not in, in the weapons of the carnal world of, of this world, the weapons, O oh Lord, that can really bring down the power of the enemy. We ask, O oh God, that you strengthen us and that you fill us with your spirit and you teach us your ways and to fill us with the knowledge of the truth, to bring every thought into captivity. Teach us, O oh Lord, to be obedient to you and to follow through with your commandments and to serve the poor so that you would fill us, O oh Lord, with yourself and that you would illuminate our darkness and that you would make us to, to have hope and joy of our salvation. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints here, as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.